Well, how do you react when bad things happen to you? It's an important question to ask. And if you've been with us throughout our march through Hebrews, you'll know that we've asked this question a few times. But just let it soak in for a second. How do you react when bad things happen to you? When your environment heats up. It says a lot about a person, how they react when things aren't going their way. We've probably observed this in lots of other circumstances of our lives. We have to think rightly about God and about his work prior to getting to those moments that we would be prepared to deal with them rightly. The Bible uses a few words to describe how we're supposed to deal with those difficulties. Steadfastness, perseverance, endurance. Surely those are some ways we're supposed to ride through difficulties, how we're supposed to manage those things. We're we're told to endure, persevere, be steadfast in the midst of those things. The author of Hebrews, just one chapter ago, gave us an entire list of Old Testament believers. And he was pointing to that list to encourage his audience to remain faithful even in the face of trials. It's kind of the big overarching point of all the book of Hebrews. The author knows that the believers who are receiving that word both have and will have to endure persecution, suffering, struggles of various kinds. And he's trying to help encourage them to persevere. He's warning them to not give up. It's one of the central themes throughout this book. Last week, our text showed us that we are to look to Jesus as our supreme example of how to remain faithful when we encounter trials. So he's about to pick up on that point here, and that's where our text picks up this morning. If you have your Bibles, go to Hebrews chapter 12, and I'm going to read verses 3 through 11. In just a moment, I'll just read that all out loud, and then we'll put the, the, each of those verses up in turn as we get to them on the slides so you can follow along with us. Let me read through 3 through 11. Uh, pray, and then go back making some observations as we go. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's pray. 
Father, this morning as we read through this passage, I pray that you would help me as I preach this to be true to your text, to be clear with what it says, and to seek to be helpful for those who are hearing. Lord, use this word to shape us, prepare us for whatever is ahead in our future. We don't know, but you do. And so use this text to prepare us, perhaps much in the very same way as it was used when it was originally written. But above all, Lord, we pray that you would use this text to help us worship and glorify, honor and love you more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to go back to the beginning of that passage again and start with just the first two verses we went through, verses three through four. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So again, the author reminds us he's pointing us to Jesus. He started this back in the verse prior. He's just continuing it on. Consider Jesus and consider that he endured persecution, hostility against himself from sinners. Made very clear the kind of thing that Jesus is enduring here, what he's highlighting is the persecution, hostility from sinners. We're to consider Jesus so that we will not grow weary or faint-hearted. So what quality of Jesus is, is, is he pointing out here? His endurance. Jesus endured. So should you. When you find yourself confronted with weariness, with fear, faint-heartedness, remember Jesus. And what does it say about Jesus in the second verse here? The, the, verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, just to, for quick definition, so it'll be helpful, the author has already used that exact phrase, shed the, uh, resist to the point of shedding blood, to the point of shedding blood. He used this back in chapter 9, and it simply refers to death. That, that shedding of blood is death here. It's not just bleeding. It's not, it's not that you, you've not resisted to the point that you've gotten a bloody nose, or you walked so far, a blister popped, and you were bleeding. No, no, no. This is death. You've not died yet, simply by merit of the fact that you can hear this. You're listening to this. You're reading this. You haven't had to go as far in your resistance to persecution as Jesus has. Chapter 9, he says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Same, same language. Without the shedding of blood. Remember, this didn't just mean the animal could be cut, a little blood on the altar, and then set free to pasture. The animal had to give its life. It was a substitute sacrifice. In your struggle against sin, believer, you haven't died for it. You haven't had to go all the way there. But Jesus did. Jesus gave his life. The author here is actually employing the same type of argument from the lesser to the greater that he did through the entire chapter 11. If you were here with us, I said this like 100 times, right? That the Old Testament saints without having seen the promise fulfilled, the promise of the coming Messiah, they were faithful. How much more that we've seen the promise fulfilled should we be faithful? It's the how much more? Well, in a similar type of argument, what he says here is that Jesus remained faithful under worse circumstances than you and I. So you and I can look to him and be encouraged that in our simpler circumstances... 
we too ought to remain faithful. Now, there's a point being made here that is so obvious to the author, so obvious to the reader, that he simply regards it as a given. But I'm going to pause for a second, and I always do this to make sure you know, this isn't the point of the text, but if you don't see this, you're going to miss the point of the text. And here's the point that he's taking as a given. Christians will suffer for the faith. Christians will suffer for the faith. You may be familiar with the New Testament. Maybe you know this verse that's rattling around in your mind when I make that comment from 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The New Testament sets us up for an expectation. And the expectation is not peaceful coexistence with all the peoples of the world. But the expectation is persecution. Suffering. Jesus even said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Look, it's going to be hard. They will drag you before rulers, governors, kings. Even your own family may turn against you. This is the way the New Testament speaks about the believing life. Don't believe the person who tells you that you can pursue Jesus and please the world at the same time. The more you pursue Jesus, it is almost certain that the level of hostility from the world will increase. This, at least, should be what we expect. You need to know that there are whole movements of people who say that they're preaching the Christian gospel, and they'll tell people that the result of saving faith is prosperity, health, wealth in this age. Whole movements of people who say they're pastors, gather together tens and even hundreds of thousands of people in buildings they call churches, and they will tell people that if you're a believer, you should expect no trials, no hardship. And if there is, that's just because you sinned, or because you didn't have enough faith, or because you didn't tithe enough. You need to be aware of these charlatans out there. The Bible uses a word for these guys, false teachers, false Prophets, you've got to know this is out there. Now, some Christians will be the recipients of more hostility than others, to be sure. But we must expect that persecution will be a part of this age. There are two reasons why we have to say this all the time. If you're like, man, I've been here a handful of times, and I, it seems like this comes up every once in a while. Do you, know, you want to know why this has to come up frequently? Two reasons. Number one, it's all over the Bible. Like, if you just read through and believe what it says, and if you're preaching through, it's just going to come up all the time, because it's all over. Second reason is because there's just so many of these prosperity gospel preachers out there. I was really disheartened a few years ago when I was uh, just uh, talking to some people about foreign missions, because as a, as a believer, uh, kind of growing up in, in Christian circles, I remember hearing about these stories of these missionaries that have gone out to these foreign lands and so many wonderful, true stories to Africa and parts of South America, Southeast Asia, maybe some oppressed people groups in China, talking about the receptivity of the people and the gospel finding roots there. And I've been greatly encouraged in many of those stories. It's been really great. And just a few years ago, as I was looking back through some of what's going on and talking to some missionary partners, finding out that a lot of what is taking root is prosperity gospel. It's not actually true gospel. 
That should break our heart even more and make us go, oh my goodness, we got to get back out there. We got to be even more involved. We got to chase this prosperity gospel junk around the world and compete with those lies for the sake of the hearts and souls of so many people who are out there hearing these things. We have to read verses like this and not miss that the expectation is that we'll have struggle. Not only should we expect to receive persecution, but we must know that it is intended by God for our good. And that's what the author says next. Look at verses 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So what do we see next? The author is telling us to receive that persecution as a discipline of the Lord. What he does first here is he cites Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. And what he does next is just he cites a whole collection of passages of the Old Testament kind of conflated. Because you see this language all over the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament as well. But it's all over the Old Testament. This Lord disciplines those whom he loves. Now, one of my favorite Old Testament comparison passages to this language here in the New Testament is found in Job chapter 5. And I'll tell you in a moment why this one I think is particularly helpful. But look at this with me. Job 5, 17 through 18. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. This is awesome and beautiful and true, and it agrees with what's going on in the rest of the Old and New Testament when it talks about discipline. It's a blessing to receive reproval, admonishment, discipline from the Lord. Don't despise it. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he wants Here's one of the reasons I think that this is really helpful here. If you are familiar with the book of Job, you might know this already, but if you're not, the guy who is citing this here in Job, his name is Eliphaz. And he's not known through that story as a guy who gets a lot of this whole picture right. In fact, he's known as a pretty insensitive friend to Job. He gets a lot of things wrong. And that's why I think this is actually kind of helpful, because this statement is a true statement. He knows this to be true. But his error is how he applies it. He takes this and he looks over at Job. You know the story of Job. Job is receiving a whole host of suffering and trial and struggle. There's kind of a cosmic battle taking place where the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan's like, yeah, the only reason he worships you is because you bless him. And he goes, no, he worships me because he loves me. And Satan's like, well, then let me mess his life up and see if he still worships you. And God approves. Satan goes out, strikes Job. All of his property, all of his wealth, all of his blessings, all of his children taken from him in a day. At like the same moment. He still won't curse God. Satan goes, well, if I touch his body, if you let me, if you let me hurt, hurt him physically, then he'll, 
then he'll reject you. God says, go for it. This is a, this is a unique circumstance. Job now, covered head to toe in boils, cutting himself, scraping himself with broken shards of pottery. Such a difficult circumstance. This, this brother starts receiving his friends to come around him, and Eliphaz says this to him, and this is true. But then he says, so Job, because this is true, and because you're under suffering, you must have sinned. And the proportion of your suffering must be due to the magnitude of your sin. So don't lie to me. What's this big, huge sin you've been doing? And Job's like, I didn't do anything. Lord, show me what it is and I'll repent. What did I do to bring all this down? Because the Lord is the one who wounds and he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. And as believers, sometimes we'll look at this and we'll go, well, then if we observe someone in suffering or struggle, that must be due to their sin. And that is the whole story of Job. We ought not think that way. Deuteronomy 8.5 says it like this. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So there's a rather important question we need to ask here. What exactly is the discipline that this author has in mind? I just told you about Job, uh, death, loss. His own body was physically wounded, hurt. There's a kind of suffering he was going through there. But what does our author in Hebrews have in mind when he says discipline? I want you to consider what the text says about it and try to come to that conclusion with me here. Verse 5 said that it can cause weariness if not received rightly. Verse 7 says that it's a treatment from God. Verse 5, again, also says that it's of the Lord. So we don't just kind of see God as the ambulance driver who shows up. Hey, what's this mess going on here? And try to clean it up. It is treatment from God. It is of the Lord. Let's see it that way. Verse 11 says that it seems painful rather than pleasant. Okay? You'll probably not prefer it. Verse 6 even uses that word chastising, chastise. Did you see that? Is chastisement. That word is used seven times in the New Testament. Give a quick, quick summary on this. Seven times that word is used in the New Testament. This is the only place that it is translated chastise. The other six places, it's translated flogged. It's the same word used of Jesus being whipped and scourged by the Romans. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he tells his disciples that you will be flogged and persecuted in synagogues. So it's for this reason, I, I think that this discipline of the Lord here is the persecution that we receive at the hands of our enemies. You see, that's why Jesus is the perfect example of it. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners. That's the point. So that when you receive such hostility from sinners... You will receive it rightly as from the Lord. So the question comes up now. How can a God who loves us, who promises to care for us, who promises to work all things out for our good, how can he inflict this kind of suffering? The author goes on to explain this. 
Look at verses 7 through 11. I'll read it out loud with me. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Wow. Several things here. First, don't miss, we're being referred to as sons. The implications of that are enormous. That God relates to us as a good father. This is the way the New Testament talks. It's not just here, it's all over the place. And he even relates to us in such a way that he treats us the way a good father should treat us. If you're not a believer here today, if you're hearing the gospel maybe for the first time, or you're new to the Christian faith trying to figure all this out, you need to know, counter to what the world will say, you're not born into this world a child of God. You're not. Not, not, the, not the way the New Testament talks about you. Jesus says in John 1, But to all who did receive Jesus, him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus says he gives the right to people to become children of God. That's significant. You and I are born into this earth sinners. And not children of God, enemies of God. We are sinners who set ourselves against him. And in his just judgment, our sin deserves his wrath and punishment. We don't go, hey, Dad, hey, Father, we're good. No, no, you're not, I'm, not your, I'm not your father. You're my enemy. But God sends his only son, Jesus, into this earth to live the perfect life we ought to have lived and takes the punishment that are, that's due to us and puts it on his son on the cross. That's why Jesus died on the cross. He died on the cross to bear the wrath of God, the penalty for our sin, so that whoever would believe in him will have the right to become children of God. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you repent of your sins, turn in faith to him, you become a child of God. And what are you to expect now if this is true? If you have not done this, you need to do this. Talk to somebody, figure out exactly what this means, open the word of God, believe in the Lord. Believe and be saved. That's what you need to do. And now what? You need to expect rightly because some charlatans out there will tell you to expect health, wealth, prosperity, like we already said. Don't buy it. It's going to be rough. The good promises of God are not so that while you're here, everything goes great. The good promises of God are that the consequences of your sin don't stick to you in eternity. That's where you're storing up treasures. That's where you will finally get, receive that prosperity. That's where you'll receive that in the glory of the Lord. You've got to have your mind right on this and expect what is coming. One of the most obvious and fundamental parts of the relationship between a father and his children is seen in discipline. 
Let's look at the language again. Can, can you go back one slide from me? Quick there. Look at that. Look at right at the very top here. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? See so how he talks about this here? He continues on. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are, this is crazy language, illegitimate children and not sons. That's how important this is. Discipline is not merely suggested. It is commanded. And more than that, it is such a critical part of the relationship between a parent and a child that if it is not present, it's as though the child is not even yours. You know, the first commandment and the second table of the law. Moses comes off Mount Sinai with ten commandments. You've heard of the ten commandments. One tablet has four commandments, our relationship with God, how we deal with God. The second table of the law is how we relate to one another. And the first of those commandments tells us, honor your father and mother. That's like the, the first commandment of the second table of the law. Why? Well, it's for a pretty obvious reason if you think about it. Because that's the first place that a person will learn to deal with human interactions. The first place to learn to deal with people is in relationship with their parents. Mom, baby, dad, kid. The home is the training ground for all other human interactions. That's why the family is so fundamental. Kids do not come out of the womb knowing how to share or how to put others first. If you've ever had a kid or know someone who has a kid, you know this. Babies are the most selfish human beings on the planet. They don't care if you didn't get sleep yesterday. They don't care how long you've been up. They don't care how hard your day was. They want what they want. It's just a baby. It's the way they are. They can't even process it. It's there in that home, in that environment, in that relationship, parent-child, that they're to learn how to interact with other people. So parents, you got to discipline your kids. Guys, this is, this is a kind of excursus, and I'm saying why. Because this is not the main point of the text. But you'll notice the way that he talks here. He, he expects we all agree with him. And so if we're not on the same kind of playing field here, we're going to miss something. Look what he says. He says, if you're left without discipline in which all have participated, right? I mean, all, all have participated in discipline. If we don't, if we don't get that, we're going to miss the whole point of this text. The Bible instructs children to obey their parents. When the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians 6, quotes Exodus 20, when he quotes the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, he says, same, same words, honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you in the land. And he immediately follows it up by making it clear so there's nothing to be missed. Children, obey your parents. Children, obey your parents. But the Bible places the responsibility for assuring that that happens on the parents and not on the kid. You know this because when you walk into a grocery store and you see a kid throwing a tantrum on the floor, you look to the parent. Now, we may judge wrongly, right? I mean, we may have been there before and you could be slow to judge, but you, why? Because you know it's not the one and a half year old's fault. There's someone else there whose job it is to ensure that that doesn't happen when they're 20. That's the way it's supposed to work. So I want to say some things here as clearly as I know how for your good. 
spank your kids. If, you, if you're a young parent and you've got kids at that age, this is something that I think happens dominantly at the younger age, like eight and younger probably. Okay, I don't think this works with your 17-year-old. But spank your kids. Spank them. I want, you, I, want show, I want to show you what the Bible says about this. Jump forward a couple here. Look at the Proverbs passages we got here. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. That's like crazy language. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. See, rod, discipline are equated here. Look at Proverbs 23, 13. The rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with the rod, he'll not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. That's death, Hades, hell kind of language. You got to notice this rod and reproof connection, this rod and discipline kind of connection that's being made. This is the language the Bible gives to parents practically to deal with discipline issues in their kids. And yet, you know, don't you? Christian parents today resist this. And I'm talking, about, I'm talking about brothers and sisters that we love, that, that love the word, that go, listen, I repent of my sins, I turn in faith to Jesus, let this shape my life. This is true, even when I, this is true. I've got to align myself to this. And yet, some days, Christian parents, in our day especially, resist this clear command. Why? I think there are two reasons. I think there are two primary categories of reasons as to why it is Christian parents who love the word struggle with putting this into action. The first is the world, peer pressure. Hear the voice of the world telling you how to manage and discipline your kid, and they don't tell you to spank them. In fact, they tell you not to. And it's such a dominant voice that it's like, well, my goodness, like, I mean, maybe they're right. Worldly voices and all their folly resist the commands of God, even the most obvious commands. They insist on finding better ways to do things than what God instructs. They refuse to concede that his word is true. Has any culture in history refused to spank their children more boldly and more loudly than we have in modern Western culture? And look around you. Do you think that we have any moral authority on this one? Do you think we have credibility? Look at how disciplined our children are. We produce the most entitled, undisciplined generation you could possibly imagine. I mean, it's, you've seen this. Have we not watched the tantrums on display? 20-year-olds, 25, 30-year-olds. That's, that's all it is. It's just a tantrum. It's just an older version of it. You take away the diaper and the bottle sometimes, and it's basically the same thing. It's a tantrum. You don't get what you want, and you're acting this way. This is not okay. Someone should have spanked you. Not just someone, your, your mom and dad. Undisciplined, entitled, you know, Antifa snowflakes, that kind. They hate authority. They don't have a shred of dignity about them. There's nothing about that like, I want my kid to be like that. No, no one does that. They think the world owes them pretty much whatever they want while they shriek, not speak, not yell, shriek at you and I for not repenting of our privilege. Guys, this isn't good for them. Do, do you think that that's joy bringing? 
They're miserable. Do you think that's going to make them happy? You think that's what's best for an adult? Brothers and sisters, a disciplined home is a happy home. A disciplined home is a happy home. We've got to let the Bible lead us on this stuff. Brother and sister, young Christian here, if you're processing through like you have kids or don't have, you're thinking about having kids someday and you're processing through, I don't know if I can spank them. If you're letting the world voices come in, you've got to push that out. They're wrong. They're wrong. If ever you find yourself facing opposing views on something, one clearly said in the Bible and another one clearly said in the world, and it seems at conflict, this is a really easy option for you. Don't do what the world says. Just don't do that. You're going to get what the world has to offer. The choice should be easy. So It's simple, even if it's hard to maybe put into practice. Brother and sister, you got you got to not listen to that worldly voice. The second reason, though, that even Christians, godly young men and women of God who want to raise their kids right, hesitate and are reluctant to put this into practice is internal issues. Personal hesitance. Personal resistance. Well, I don't care what the world says. I don't want to spank my kid. Listen, if anybody's sitting out there right now like, can't wait to spank my kid, there's a problem with you. I hate spanking my kids. I don't ever look forward to spanking my kids. I don't come home and, all right, who's got, who needs a spanking today? That's, that's not the way we're supposed to think. And any parent who spanks their kids, you know this, don't you? If you love your kids and you're spanking rightly, not over the top, but you're spanking your kids, you know. The last thing you're thinking is like, man, I, I just love the inconvenience. When I'm, when I'm going through the grocery store and I got the kid throw a tantrum, I love leaving my cart there, going back out to the car, taking them in there, making sure no one's watching, spank the kids so that no one thinks that I'm doing something I should, calm them down, give them a hug, walk through them, and then go back in, hope the cart's still there, and reset all over again. No one thinks that way. Whether it's, I don't like to physically hurt my kid, or it's, I just, it's too inconvenient. <laughs> Those personal things inside of us sometimes keep us from doing what the Word says to do very clearly. You know what's interesting? The word discipline, the English word discipline that we use here, I think is kind of helpful for us. It takes discipline to rightly administer discipline. You have to make a commitment and stick to what you said you're going to do. And just for clarity, this is not in any way approval of abuse. Christians just don't go, physical discipline, all okay. Hold hold on, hold on. doesn't mean if someone hits their kid, that's good and right. No, there's ways that I think we're supposed to do it and ways that we're definitely not. Abuse is never advocated by the Word of God. And it does happen. We must acknowledge it does happen. But rather than just throw the whole baby out with the bathwater, well, then don't ever do it. No, do it rightly, brother and sister, with patience, with love. Don't do it just, just because you're angry. Don't go over the top. Talk to older brothers and sisters about this one. Find out good ways to implement these strategies. Figure out exactly how to do it. Read your word. Hear about the love, the wisdom that is provided to your kids when you do this. Think about it rightly. It's foolish to think of physical discipline as having only two speeds, abuse or love. That's not a dichotomy the Bible draws for us. Spanking is not a suggestion. It's a command. It's a command. Now, to the one who thinks that discipline does not have to be physical, because I've heard it. I've heard it many times, okay? I know the Christian who's like, of course I'm going to discipline my kids, but I'm not going to spank them. What are you talking about? I know the objection. 
And to, if that's you right now, or maybe, maybe someone you know, maybe it's husband and wife pair, and one of you is like, I think we should do this, but he, won't, he doesn't want to get on board. Or she doesn't want to get on board. For your sake, have you not heard the words that are being used? Rod? Strike? Pain? Chastise? I told you that's flog. I want to show you Proverbs 29, 19. Look at Proverbs 29, 19. For the record, people are going to wonder about this. Servants in the Old Testament and the New Testament day, for the record, were considered part of the oikos. They were part of the household. You treated them with love and respect, and you didn't abdicate responsibility to discipline even the servant boy in your midst. So even servants were supposed to get a kind of discipline. Look what it says. By mere words, a servant is not disciplined. For though he understands, he will not respond. Words are not the same thing as discipline. If you're a parent, you've got a kid there, you had, had them stand in front of you, you know, facing off, and you say, well, you know, don't hit your brother. Okay. You know they understand. That's not going to do anything. That's not sufficient. Discipline is not words. The way the Bible uses this word for discipline is much more than that clearly. Did you know in 1 Corinthians 11, God actually brings physical discipline into his church when people are abusing the Lord's Supper? That word's used again. People were having communion together, and when they did it, some people were getting drunk on it, pushing other people out and just get, literally getting drunk on the communion wine. Other people were stuffing their face with the bread that represents the body of Christ so that when others were coming up, oh, good, where's the, where's, where's the body and uh, bread of Christ? We can have this guy. Ah, oh, we already ate it all. Paul's angry. The Lord is angry about that. It actually says in 1 Corinthians 11, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. You do that stuff, that's not the Lord's Supper. That's judgment. Look what he says. That is why many of you are weak and ill. Some have died. God has killed some of them. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged but when we are judged by the Lord, listen to this language, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Man alive. How a person says discipline is only a word spoken, a timeout given. Brothers and sisters, that's just not the way the Bible talks about these things. Spanking ought to be a part of your parenting responsibilities. No, it is not the only tool in the toolbox. But it needs to be one of them. If you're not employing this fundamental and biblically prescribed practice of discipline into your parenting, you need to be. I've had people come before, Laura and I, and they're like, okay, we, we're really having trouble with disciplining our kids, and we've got some bratty kids, and I go, okay, tell me how you spank them. Oh, we don't spank. Okay, well, that's a good place to start. You need to spank them. Oh, well, no. Help us with all the other ways that don't include spanking. And I go, I can't help you. I can't, that's so fundamental. God made you bigger than them. Someday you won't be. That's why it literally says, they disciplined us for a time, talking about their fathers. But the Lord continues in this. Guys, if you won't, this is kind of like a construction worker saying, tell me how to do the job, I refuse to pick up a hammer. Well, you're going to probably need a hammer. And if you refuse, I don't know how to help you. Duct tape will only get you so far. You're going to have to use what the Lord has given you in certain circumstances. So please, for the love of the next generation of kingdom builders, please discipline your kids. Some days, part of that, you need to show mercy. 
This is a great part of the spanking conversation. If you spank your kids, and they know what deserves spanking. One of the things that deserves spanking in our household is bold and willful disobedience. So there's, there's a kind of disobedience that we say, clean your room. And they kind of start cleaning, they get distracted and do something else. The disobedience, it deserves discipline. But there's another kind where they look you in the face and go, no. That's, that's a little more bold, right? That kind of response gets an immediate spank in our household. By, by immediate, we mean go sit on the couch. Dad will be in there in a minute. That, that'll deal. Come in there, give him a spank on their little butt. But there are other times we send them in the other room and sit down there with them and say, what do you deserve? Tears already. Most of my kids' tears already. Some of them are like, <laughs> that bold, <laughs> like, what do you got? <laughs> the others, they're, they're, they're weeping, you know. What do you deserve? <laughs> Spank. That's right, you do. But I'm not going to give you one. This is what we call mercy. You deserve a spanking. But I'm just not going to give you this time. Because I want you to remember that Jesus took our sins. And the punishment that I deserve, death, separation from God, was put on him. They always cry and they hug. (laughs) It's almost like in the little child mind they can somehow get it. It's just beautiful. Because you might rob your kid of those kind of moments if you don't do these kinds of things. It must be practiced consistently, intentionally. I still remember the first time that Laura spanked Bethany. She's our old, uh, Bethany was our oldest, and I'd only had to spank her a couple times. She's like one, one years old. If, if your kid's much older than one, you haven't spanked him, you're pro- probably behind the power curve. Because people always wonder, well, when they're five, we'll start spanking. No, that's way too long. There's no Bible verse for exactly how, what age. Admit it, okay? But when they can look at you and boldly disobey, it's time, at least. So Bethany's probably like 13, 14 months old or something like that. I'd, I'd given her a couple of spanks at that point. Like we were just at the very beginning of all of it. And my wife was super hesitant. I don't want to spank her. I'm like, well, of course you don't, but we're going to have to do this. We know it's what's right. She goes, I know, I know. She calls me from work one day. She goes, Bethany is just boldly disobeying. And I'm like, babe, today's the day. I think you're going to have to do it. Well, will you come home and do it? And I'm like, no, first of all, I don't want to. <laughs> you're going to have to do this. And she goes, I just don't know that I can. And I still remember, uh, we had a little... Um, uh, uh, receiver unit, like a DVD player kind of thing. It was low on the ground under the TV. You should have one of those if you have kids. It's a good reason to learn to teach discipline. Don't put it high, put it low so you have some... I'm just kidding there. But uh, seriously, she'd go up and she'd push, put, touch the stuff or stick graham crackers in the, you know, the VHS player or something. And so she went to go touch it and Laura says to her, don't touch, Bethany. And she looked up at mommy and every parent has seen this. Uncle, aunt, you've seen it. Grandparents, you've watched this. They do that? Oh, my goodness. It's amazing. Every kid does. They just, looking at it, don't, don't, nope, nope, oh, like that. And she touched it, and she knew she had to give her a spank. So Laura's crying. She's crying. She's just, she's relaying the story to me later. She puts little Bethany in her lap, and she, (laughs) and Bethany turned around and laughed. Laura tells that uh, spanking got a lot easier after that point. Oh, oh, really? You think that's funny? But it has to be practically consistent. It has to be intentional. You have to be committed with your discipline. It's not just days. It's not just months. 
This is going to be years of it. Guys, there will be a point. I don't know what the point is. Older, older brothers and sisters in here, if you have adult children and you might have some good help on this, help your younger brothers and sisters like us who are trying to figure out what timing is best for some of these things. Not a transition into more useful, uh, more effective means as your kids get older. Help us understand this more. But there will come a point where that's not going to produce what it was supposed to produce. But I do know parents who come up to me and said, well, we tried spanking, and he, he didn't like it. Oh, you don't, you don't say. Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm reading verse 11 on this passage. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields fruit. Of course they're not going to like it. You don't like the discipline that's coming in the moment. This is why we need chapters of the Bible to encourage us. You don't go, man, I love getting disciplined. I love what's coming. No, it's going to be hard. We're going to have to be encouraged to persevere, endure through it. The Lord loves you enough. He's not going to wait for your approval before he disciplines you. He's not going to wait until you, you figure out rightly what's going on there before he'll discipline you. He loves you enough. He disciplines like a good father does. If you struggle with this, Young moms, young dads, if you struggle with this, perhaps this would be a great place where you just need to exercise your trust in the word of God when it clearly says to do this in spite of what your experiences, your hesitancies, your preferences. You just, maybe this is a good place for you to grow as a man or woman of God to say, I hate this idea. I'm going to do it because the Bible says to do it. And older brothers and sisters in Christ, let us be really slow to judge on this one. It's no small thing for a parent to make that decision to move forward. Maybe it used to be in some day and age. In our day, it's hard. And so we need to be really generous and gentle with those that are pacing themselves in and trying to learn how to do it well. Let's come alongside and be helpful with them without, without quick judgment. But you do need to spank your kid. Well-disciplined children who turn into well-adjusted adults are extremely important, but... All of what I said, I stand by, I believe was true. And I actually think it has to be understood for us to get anything out of Hebrews 12, 9 through 11. I think we have to understand what I just said. But that was not the point of the text. That's the foundation so that we can understand what the point is. And the point is this. If a person cannot see how a loving parent-child relationship includes pain then he or she will never be able to understand their relationship with a God who is sovereign over their suffering. They will not be able to adequately process the moments or even seasons of pain that are sure to come. And and you know what I mean if you've been through these before. God, you said you loved me. Why are you bringing me through this? Why would you do this to me? That's why we have to see this. Look again with me, 9 through 11. Besides this, we've all, we've, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. See how it's like expected. You respect the discipline coming from a father. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time. Remember, discipline this, that kind of, doesn't go on for forever. It comes a point that the, the child grows up, gets out of the house, moves on. They're not getting that same discipline from the parent in that way. That goes on for a short time there. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. That we may share his holiness. 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness, that we may bear fruit. Christian, your suffering, even persecution, which is what I think is chiefly at play here. I think this is chiefly persecution. It's not just getting sick. It's not just stubbing your toe. It's not just struggling to pay the bills. I think this is chiefly persecution because Jesus is the prime example of it. Your suffering, even persecution, is intended by God for your good. You may have, you may have heard these kind of lines before, but sometimes well-meaning Christians say things like, don't blame God for this trial. That's true. That's good counsel. Don't blame God for your trials. That's true. I, I, I'm not rejecting that. You don't look to God and shake your fist. How dare you, God? No, we never ought to do that. Don't you blame God for your trial. But that is not what this author is saying, is it? This author is saying you're going to deal with trials. You're going to deal with these things just like Jesus did. And he doesn't go, don't blame God. And he also doesn't do what Job's friends did. He doesn't go, uh, must have been you, you sinner. That's why this is happening. So whatever that is, get that out of your life, and then things will go back to normal and good for you again. That is not what this author says. He doesn't tell us to not blame God, and he doesn't tell us that you're just in this situation because of your sin. What does he say? tells us that when we are persecuted, just as Jesus was, we are to receive this trial as a good gift from a loving father. It was Job who said, you give, you take away. Job does not say, you're the giver, I'm the loser. You give, and then I get in trouble and lose it. You give, and it's gone. Job knew rightly. He'll be vindicated by the word of God. God will say, you were right, Job. He even says this. This is is an awesome passage to help us with this same idea. This is from Job chapter 2. This is when Job's wife comes to him, and she's so broken, just as you can imagine somebody would be. She's been there. She's lost all those things, all that property. We, We sometimes forget Job's wife lost just as much as he did. All of her kids. They were attacked from the surrounding neighboring nations who came in and took all their property in a day. She's upset. She tells him, just curse God already. Just die. It'd be better, Job, to be dead. This is what Job says. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. What a powerfully clear view of trial, tribulation. It'll say it clear in Job 42. If someone would go like, well, he's not really saying that God brought the evil. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, he does. Job 42, verse 11 says, Then came, this is after the whole event is done and God begins to bring blessing back into Job's life. After this event is over. 
Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. They all knew. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Two points of application as we close. Very quickly, very quick points of application because I've been saying them throughout this. Number one, you and I must expect we're going to receive the discipline of the Lord. And we must receive it as a good and loving gift. This is not the opposite of God's love. It's not the other side of the coin. Sometimes God loves you, and other times he disciplines you. It's not true. God doesn't stop loving in order to discipline His discipline is his love on display. Have you considered that if a Christian were to ask God to show his love to them, brothers and sisters, if you're out there and if you ever ever prayed this, "I, I know you say you love me, Father. I know you say it. Show it to me. It is possible that the proof of his love that he will show you is prison. Beatings. Chains. You. Son, do you want me to show my love? Yes, Father. Here they come. Brace yourself. Jeez. Guys, this is not the way your flesh is going to talk. This is not the way the world is going to talk. It will not understand. And in this kind of moment, your flesh is not going to be a help to you. The Pharisees got this exact same thing wrong. When they saw Jesus on the cross, they mocked. And they looked up at him like, you're the son of God. If he loved you, God would take you off that cross. Matthew 27, 43. He, that guy hanging on the cross, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. The Pharisees mocked Jesus. We know God doesn't love you because you're suffering. You see how wrong they were? Because the world will not give this to you. The enemy will not give this to you. And the flesh will not help you see this. But the Lord's discipline, contrary to foolish opinions, is proof of his love for us. My kids have a hard time seeing this tonight. In those moments of discipline and spanking with them and so so important to sit there, spend a moment with your kid in that moment of discipline. And you have to swat their little behind for being a little brat. And then what do you do? You hug them and you kiss them and you tell them that you love them. And I do this because I love you. This is not hate from me. This is love from me. Teach them to receive the love of a father through discipline. And that's the second point of application, especially for those who have kids. Discipline your kids, and when you do, use it to teach them. It is a display of your love for them. Do not teach them there's a disparity. Sometimes I love you, and sometimes I discipline you. Sometimes God will show you love, and other times he will show you hardship. Wrong. Not true. We talk about this sometimes here because it's hard to not see it. If things continue to march in the cultural direction where they are going, it's hard to imagine how hostility against Christians will not heat up. 
You know what I'm talking about. It looks like it's getting worse and worse, which means it is highly likely your kids and grandkids will have to endure a far greater persecution than you and I. The best gift you can give your kids who may be chained to a wall for Jesus someday is to spank their little butt in love. That's how you prepare your kid to suffer. And no, that's the love of God. Brothers and sisters, we would not come to these conclusions left alone. But by the instruction of the word of God, we see what he says. Let us live according to these things. Let's pray. Father, this is a difficult word. This is a hard word. And I know brothers and sisters here today who are going to face trials and struggles of a whole variety of types. Some in this room may receive genuine, what we could call persecution. And I pray that when that day comes, they will not challenge whether or not you love them, but they will receive it as love. They will know that you have not forsaken. Father, we are so grateful for this truth. We pray that you would drive it deep into our hearts and into our souls. Help us to teach our kids to do likewise. Help us to be a body that loves your word and trusts your word more than the voice in our head if it were to contradict it. Prepare us for whatever's coming that we may give you great honor and glory and learn to love you more as a result of whatever's ahead of our life. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.